Well, good morning, everyone. I was at the airport a few weeks ago and riding one of those shuttles, you know, around the getting from one terminal to the next. And it was a pretty crowded little shuttle. There was a couple that that came in that looked like they could use a seat, so I gave them my seat, and it caused me to stand up and stand by this man that I hadn't noticed before. He had this big suitcase and a big shirt on that said Gideon International on it, and a cap that said Gideons on the cap. I thought, well, this guy is either with the Gideons or he's selling caps. <laughs> so. I asked him about it, and uh, he was just kind of, you know, staring at the ceiling. And so I just got in his space for a second and said, tell me, I said, are you with the Gideons? Let me just guess. You're, you're with the Gideons, right? He said, yeah. He said, we're, um, we're headed to, forget what the name of the country was, but we're headed to China or someplace to do a, um, a mission trip there. And he says, we plan to hand out, you know, a bunch of Bibles. And so he and I had a real pleasant conversation between Terminal A and Terminal B that lasted probably about five minutes. And uh, and I told him I'd be praying for his trip, and so if you think about it, pray for the fruit of that trip, because I'm sure it's over now. But I mentioned that story because as soon as he got off, I was continuing on to another terminal, but as soon as he got off, another man got on and took his place and was standing right there. And this man was a completely different man. He, ha- he engaged me in conversation and began talking. Uh, anyway, you could just tell this man probably didn't know the Lord. And he was uh, uh, very talkative. And his language and just everything about how he was talking was very different from the conversation I just had. So I, I just tried to be very polite with him and talk with him some, but my terminal was coming up and I hopped off and as I was walking away I just thought well I just experienced in the last 10 minutes a conversation with two completely different people what made the difference and I thought you know what it was the word of God as committed as the Gideons are to the Bible this man was clearly committed to it in his own life and I just experienced the difference that the word of God makes uh, upon people that otherwise we, we could swing a lot of different ways if it wasn't for not just our exposure to the scriptures, but our, our allowing the word of God to have its way in our lives. I remember reading accounts of the Titanic's sinking, and when they began to put people into the lifeboats, uh, many people didn't want to get in because this was in April, far north, you know, North Atlantic, and of course that there's icebergs floating around, it's cold outside, and it was cold, and people didn't want to get out of their cold, ca- their nice warm cabin, they wanted to and get in this uh, little bitty lifeboat in the middle of the ocean. They wanted to stay on the big liner where it was nice and safe. And there was, they had a real hard time convincing people to get in the lifeboat. It was, um, it, it took them experiencing the list of the boat to finally decide, you know what, I probably ought to get in the lifeboat. 
also read many years later, fast forward to about uh, 18 years ago now at 9-11, there was a man in the Pentagon when the Pentagon was struck and he was one of the only men that lived through that uh, in, in the room that he was in. He was one of the only people that survived the, uh, the attack. And he made a statement I thought was interesting. He said, I thought I was in the safest place in the world. He was in the Pentagon. And he was the only, one of the only ones that survived where he was. Well, anyway, I share all that to say, whether it's the Titanic or whether it's uh, the Pentagon or whether it's circling DFW in a shuttle. We aren't any more secure in life in one place or another uh, apart from the grace of God and apart from the Word of God. We feel like we're secure until we see a reason that exposes the truth. And the truth is, apart from God, we have no security, no salvation, no promise of one more breath in life. It's difficult to have that realization when things are going great, but sometimes it takes the Lord peeling back the curtain for a moment and showing us who we really are apart from his hand. And when all we have is trust in God, then all of a sudden we realize that we need to walk with God even when times are good. Turn with me to the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. When's the last time you've heard a message from Second Chronicles that wasn't in chapter 7 with that one verse that somehow relates to the United States? Second Chronicles chapter 14. Second Chronicles is a great book. Both, actually, both First and Second Chronicles are wonderful because they take a slant on the kings of, the, of, of Israel and Judah before the exile, but it's written to people who lived after the exile, and it reminded them as they go back into the land to be faithful, to have a passion for the things of God. And for, the word, and for the word of God. And so First and Second Chronicles really emphasizes the faithful kings to encourage the people going back to be faithful. Because God helps the people who are faithful to his word, and so the encouragement is therefore to be faithful. In the history of the northern kingdom, you remember Israel had a divided kingdom, sort of like the United States in the Civil War, where there was a north and the south, with two different, that were two different countries, though one unrecognized, the, um, the kingdom of Israel and Judah were similar, were very much the same, and that there was a northern kingdom in which over the course of centuries there were 20 kings, none of them were godly, which is amazing. In the southern kingdom, there were 20 kings as well, and only eight of them were godly. Some you have to kind of almost take a vote on because you're not real sure we're going to call them godly or not, but basically about eight were godly. Out of 40 kings total, about eight really only followed the Lord. Well, King Asa was one of the ones that followed God, but you might also argue that he was a coin toss, as we'll see toward the end of his life. But Second Chronicles 14, let's begin in the second verse. Asa did good 
and right in the sight of the Lord his God. For he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherim, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. King Asa. It's one of the few godly kings that reigned after David, and we see from this text that we just read that godliness is not just talk. Godliness is life. Godliness is action. And Asa brought about great reforms in Israel. He, uh, the, he removed the high places. As we've mentioned before, the high places were just that. They were high places where people felt like they could worship God or God's um, they had more access to God because they were higher and closer to them. It was where the Canaanites also worshipped, so there was a bit of, uh, of cultural influence there. The sacred pillars that are mentioned are, were, were pagan. They were pillars that were thought to contain the local gods. Asa got rid of those. The Asherim were wooden poles dedicated to the goddess Asherah. And so Asa says, we're going to get rid of all this stuff. This is not what God wants, and we're going to get rid of it. And he did. And he brought about a great reform. And as a result, God responded. The kingdom was undisturbed under him. God brought about safety. We'll look down at verse 8, what happens next. Let's see if Asa's godliness continues. Verse 8, Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, bearing large shields and spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin, bearing shields and wielding bows. All of them were valiant warriors. Now, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Marashah. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephathah at Marasha. Now you've been given on the back of your notes there a map. Got to get your reading glasses out for this little guy. Look at, uh, you can see right in the middle it says Judah. And if you look at the box that's there sort of to the, uh, to the right there, you can't really read it, but it's a box there that's right next to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is basically right there where the box is. And if you look right above the box, you'll see this dotted line. That dotted line separates Judah from the south and Israel from the north. So you have two countries, and that's their border, is the dotted line. Now, if you look south, you can see... Uh, sort of follow that line that, that goes down, you can see Marashah. It's, it's uh, in red. It's a red, inside a red box with a little red uh, star there that ind indicates a battle. And you can see Zerah the Ethiopian coming up. And so Asa and his men travel down to Marashah. Zerah the Ethiopian comes up, and they meet in this place uh, that was in the the... It's called the Shvela, or the, the, the low rolling hills, sort of the hill country, the, the foothills going up into the hill country. It was the buffer zone that was a good place to have secure because it was the access up into the hill country. 
So Zerah the Ethiopian comes up from Egypt with an army of a million men. Look at how God, uh, look at how Asa responds to the Lord. Verse 11. Asa called to the Lord his God and said, look at this great prayer. Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar. And so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army, and they carried away much plunder. So Asa prays this great prayer that expresses his complete dependence. Asa had a little more than half of what the Ethiopian uh, army or the Egyptian army had. And Asa calls out to the Lord, and he basically says, we are helpless. We have no strength. We're in a situation that, Lord, you've made it absolutely plain. If you don't show up, we're cooked. And Asa prays and says, we trust in you. And, it, and, and it's in your name that we've come against this multitude. This is about you. It's not just about us. And show yourself to be God. Don't let mere man prevail against you. It's a great prayer. And it is a prayer that is filled with timeless principles that we can apply in our lives and we really should apply in our lives. Vastly outnumbered, Asa goes with the confidence of God and God gives them victory. The text says that, that Asa chases them as far as Gerar. And if you look at your map once again, you can see in the, the bottom left there, there's a box, a red box, Gerar, that points off to the left. Basically, he chases them back to Judah's border. He chases them out of the country. And so now, once again, they're secure. In fact, history verifies this because Judah experienced no more interference from Egypt for uh, about 150 years until the time of Josiah. So God put Asa in a place where Asa realizes that there's nobody that can help but God. Asa was completely powerless if God didn't show up. And uh, Asa realizes that what was humanly impossible with God is possible. So backing up and looking at the big picture, Asa was godly. He removed the idols. But it wasn't just a matter of getting rid, getting rid of the bad movies at the theaters. Now it was a matter of, okay, now when we're invaded by this foreign army, now are you going to trust God? And he did. He went down and he trusted the Lord and God delivered. It took this kind of a, a situation to expose the reality of Ace's heart. I read about a, a poll, a Gallup poll, that had a, some interesting finds in it. It revealed that people who experienced uh, remarkable physical or psychological healing 
they said that 63% of the people who received this healing said that their religious faith is the most important thing in their lives. But those who had never had any kind of an affliction, only 28% said that their faith was important to them. Isn't that interesting? 60-something percent said that their faith is important if they had great struggle. 28% who didn't really have any struggles from their perspective said their faith is not that big a deal. So often we pray that the Lord would get rid of our struggles, and yet so often God uses those struggles to keep our faith strong. It's a terrible irony. Don't you hate it? And yet it is so true. Statistics back up what the Bible has said all along, that we trust God most when we realize we have something to trust him for. There's going to be a time in your life, I'd say probably for most of us in this room, it's already happened, but will happen again, where you're surrounded by a situation that is humanly impossible, where God puts you in a place to where you say, Lord, if you don't show up, I'm cooked. Something's going to, you've got to do something here. We're not told how God's going to show up. God didn't tell Asa how he was going to deliver them. In fact, we use that word that's uh, always in the Bible, and I always wonder, what does it mean to rout somebody? Because God does lots of routing. Have you noticed in the Bible, whenever there's a, a victory that God gives, it's just summed up as God routed them. That's great. What does rout mean? You even want to look it up in the Hebrew. What does rout mean? Well, we wish God would do some routing in our lives as well. And he does, he does. But as soon as this victory occurs, now there is, there is another vulnerable, vulnerable place, and that is the place of victory, the place of strength. Look at the very next chapter, chapter 15. Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But in their distress they turned to the God of Israel, and they sought him, and he let them find him. In those days there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you, be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. It's so gracious of the Lord to come to us when we're doing great and to say, don't forget to stay close to the Lord because the reason that there is success is because you're walking with me. You have spiritual success and victory because you're walking close to the Lord. Now keep this in context. This doesn't mean that if we walk with God, then God's going to take care of all of our enemies in the sense that all things are going to go well for us. Remember, Asa was walking with God and the Ethiopians still invaded. There's still going to be those moments where the enemy shows up 
and threatens us and basically challenges us to put our faith to the test. But after this great victory, the Spirit of God came to a specific prophet, Oded, and went to meet Asa and said, very specifically, the Lord is with you when you are with him, and if you seek him, he will let you find him. That's good news, and it's something that we need to remember in moments of strength because it's so easy, once things are going well, to kind of put our spiritual life on autopilot, to sort of assume, you know what, things are going great, and now they're just going to coast. But the reality is we are so much more vulnerable in moments of strength because we don't realize our dependence on God like we do in moments of struggle. I love it that the Lord initiated the message. God took the initiative to tell Asa, don't let up on your spiritual passion. Now we won't read it, but the rest of chapter 15 talks about Asa's further reforms, and they're fantastic, including burning his grandmother's Asherah pole in the Kidron Valley. You know you're walking with God if you got the courage to burn grandma's pole. You know? You know it's a true faith if you tell family what they can do with their pagan stuff. So true. And uh, this is the way it was with Asa. It was a time of spiritual strength, but that is the time of spiritual strength is still a time to seek God. When you're strong spiritually is not the time to go soft on your spiritual life. It's the time to dig in and to grow even more. This is what the Spirit of God challenges Asa to do. And it was essential because God was going to take the next test up a level. And Asa was not prepared for it. We're going to see something now that we really need to pay close attention to because it is something that we deal with in our lives. Look at the very next chapter, chapter 16. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. Now look at your map once again. Find the box where Jerusalem is. That's where Asa is. And look north of there and you'll see Ramah. It's underlined. And notice it's over the border. Israel has invaded inside Judah and has taken Ramah. And you really have to look closely, but Ramah is at a crossroad. There's not, on, not only a north-south road there, but there's also an east-west road that goes back and forth between Gibeon and Michmash. But Ramah is at a crossroads. Ramah was a very strategic location along that highway there that was called the Way of the Patriarchs. It was very strategic. And there was something about this that caused Asa to let go. Look at verse 2. Basha comes in, fortifies Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going in or coming out to Asa. Verse 2, Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lives in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me. 
as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go, break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Aijon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and, and the store cities of Naphtali. When Basha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his work. Then King Asa brought all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Basha had been building, and with them he fortified Geba and Mizpah. I don't know if you saw it this week. I was tickled to read a story in the news about a Nevada trooper that pulled over a hearse driving in the uh, high occupancy lane. <laughs> the trooper, this was in Las Vegas, he, the trooper pulls him over, pulls over the guy driving the hearse, and says, You know, this lane is for, you know, you got to have more than one person. And the driver said, well, what's wrong with him? Isn't he a person? <laughs> and pointed to the, the corpse that he was carrying. And the trooper clarified, no, it needs to be a living, breathing person. I saw that and thought, isn't it interesting how sometimes we'll twist a situation to our benefit? We'll try to find a loophole in order to make it work for us when the reality is we know we really shouldn't be in that lane. But he was there. Asa had dedicated the silver and gold to the Lord. Look at, we just read in chapter 16, verse 2. Notice it says, Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Look back up a couple of verses to chapter 5, verse 18. Part of Asa's great passion to the Lord, he says, he brought into the house of God the dedicated things of his father, and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. Asa brought the things that he personally dedicated to the house of the Lord. He gave it to God. And then, all of a sudden, when Basha, the king of the north, comes down and threatens Ramah, Asa goes into the temple and takes out the very things that he had put in and sends them to this pagan king of Aram saying, help me. Asa is hauling a corpse in the fast lane. He is redefining what works for him. I remember reading about a guy named George Dixon. He was a soldier, Confederate soldier during the Civil War. His fiance gave him a $20 gold piece before he headed off to war, and he kept it with him all the time. In fact, he kept it in his pocket. And one day, that $20 gold piece stopped a bullet, literally saved his life, pulls the gold piece out, and it's got a big dent in it where the bullet had hit it. And that became, for Dixon, it became basically a, a lucky piece. And he, and he was often seen holding it and, and sort of, you know, feeling it, and like, I guess like a rabbit's foot or whatever. Well, not long after that, Dixon was assigned to the uh, Confederate submarine, CSS Hunley. And long story short, the sub was sunk and Dixon died. CNN did a, did a, uh, a show where they raised this sub, 
the submarine and they found Dixon's gold coin. And uh, I just thought, you know, that's interesting. The gold coin could not save this man. It sort of makes me think of Asa taking the gold and sending it to this foreign pagan king. Asa's response was to take the silver and gold, the very things that he had dedicated to God, and to help him buy security, to help him buy a foreign king. Now, here's an interesting question. What was it in Asa that, that allowed him to trust God against a million Ethiopians? But now, all of a sudden, he panics and strips the gold out of the house of God and sends it to a, a pagan king. What made the difference? Well, one thing we could sort of see from the map is that when Basha invaded, he was literally right on top of Jerusalem. He was a mere five miles north. Not only that, the text is absolutely accurate in its geographical observation as well as the intent of Basha, and that is that by taking Rama, it prevented anybody from going in or from anybody going in to help Asa or Asa leaving from the north. He was completely blocked, and Asa panicked. The area in which Rama uh, existed or, or stood is an area of Benjamin called the Central Benjamin Plateau. It was a large tableland right in the middle of the nation, and it was so significant, in fact, uh, it's been estimated by, by some that the action narratives of the Old Testament, half of them took place in this plateau. It was so significant in its, in its place. And Asa knew this. Asa knew the significance of this, and he realized, you know, it doesn't matter what happens, I've got to get this back. I've got to get it back. And you don't see him taking a moment to stop and ask the Lord about it. You can check the, the parallel account in 1 Kings, and there's no mention there either of Asa doing anything of a spiritual nature. It was just like all of a sudden, it's that time in, in your life where something happens, and you just knee-jerk reaction, and you take care of it. There's no need to pray about it. I know how we can handle this. I devoted that gold to the Lord. I'll just take that gold, and I will take it and use it to protect my country. And you know what? It worked. And that is such a danger when God allows us to use our own wits and wisdom, our own money, our own smarts, and it works. And that, that affirms a weak faith as opposed to a faith that is stronger and growing. There's a principle here that I would like to share with you that goes beyond Asa and lands right in the middle of our lives. And here it is. What we trust most, God may require so that we learn to trust Him alone. What we trust most, God may require so that we learn to trust Him alone. And we see that this was a problem for Asa. He had no problem trusting God down in the south, a, bunch, a million Ethiopians. Uh, uh, no problem. We'll trust you for that, Lord. But when the issue is closer to home, literally, Asa panicked, and he had to have it no matter what. He couldn't risk not having it. He did whatever it took to get that back. 
God took it away from him, and it revealed what Asa was trusting in. You know, in the Old Testament, the Hebrews were required to give a, a perfect sacrifice, a flawless sacrifice, the best sacrifice. The, uh, the first fruits were required. It was the best of your harvest. You were supposed to give it to God. The firstborn of your children, your firstborn son, you were supposed to dedicate to the Lord. Your very best was to be given to God. Even of the sacrifices, the fat was considered the best of the animal. It was given to God. God got our best. He gets our very best, and he wants it first. It's the same idea with the tithe. The tithe is to be off the top, not off the bottom. It's given to God very first. God wants our best because it expresses our trust that, he, that God will provide the rest. If we give God off the top, then we are giving God not just 10%, as it were, but at the moment, 100%, trusting him that the rest will follow. We give God the best, trusting that he will give us the rest. And it's not just true with sacrifices and simple things like money. God sometimes does it with people. Think about Abraham. He had waited 25 years for Isaac. And he knew that Isaac was the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made to Abraham. And yet God, had, uh, God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. God took from Abraham what he prized most as a test to see where his heart was. And of course, Abraham passed with flying colors. Asa, not so much. Our greatest love on this earth should not rival our love for God. Do we love the gifts and the people that God gives us more than the God who gives them? A great way to find out is what happens when God takes it away. It reveals where our true heart is. And that is a hard revelation. It's a hard revelation a lot of times because we don't think it's true. We don't want to think it's true. We'll think that, you know, we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God in his grace will reveal at times we don't. Not to shame us or to make us feel bad, but to reveal the truth so that we can deepen our dedication to him by revealing that it isn't as thorough as we thought it was. I like what Job said after his family was taken from him. He said, what I feared most has come upon me. But he also said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord Jesus has given us no less of a standard. He said, quote, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, without hesitating, he said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. God may allow a time of removal, just like he did with Asa, so that we recognize and we learn how to trust in God alone. It's a hard revelation. Asa chose to revert his trust elsewhere. Look what happened. Verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram, 
and have not relied on the Lord your God. Therefore, the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You've acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Listen to this quote by Craig Barnes. Craig Barnes writes, The deep fear behind every loss is that we have been abandoned by the God who should have saved us. The transforming moment in Christian conversion comes when we realize that even God has left us, we then discover it was not God, but our image of God that has abandoned us. Only then is change possible. In other words, what he's saying is God hasn't forsaken us. Our perception of what God ought to be has forsaken us. Our expectations of God have forsaken us, not God. It's our expectations of God. When God doesn't act like we think he should act, we need to adjust our view of God to be bigger than what we can understand. There was a part of Asa's heart that would not surrender to God. It included this little piece of land north of him that he had to have at all costs. There was an exception clause to Asa's trust. If that hot spot gets pushed, if that button gets pushed, then all of a sudden, my spiritual life is off the table and it's every man for himself. The prophet, Asa, the prophet gave Asa a wonderful truth, a wonderful truth, that God searches for those who trust him completely. Isn't that a great verse? Verse 9, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, the omnipresent God, the same God who looked over all Israel and picked David out of Bethlehem, told Samuel, go to Bethlehem, I have selected from Jesse's sons a king for myself. God's eyes looked all throughout Israel and chose David. God's eyes moved to and fro throughout the earth with a purpose. Notice the purpose for God looking in our lives. Not that he can squash us, not that he can condemn us, but that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God looks with the intent of supporting you and me. He looks in our lives for that, for that purpose. And the goal, our goal, should be a heart that is completely his. Well, here's the second principle. The first principle is that what we may trust most God may require so that we learn to trust him alone. The second principle is God desires our trust so that he may do marvelous things in our lives. God wants us to trust him so that he can do marvelous things in our lives. That's straight from the text, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. I think one reason that so many of us don't experience the power of God in our lives is we don't give God time to show up. We just jump in there and take care of it rather than wait on the Lord 
to take care of it in his way and in his time. The prophet told Asa, you know what? You could have beaten the Arameans too if you hadn't trusted in them. We don't know how the Lord would have brought that about. Maybe the Arameans would have sided with, with the northern kingdom. They already had a, a, a treaty together. Maybe they would have come against Asa and the Lord would have delivered all of them into Asa's hands. We don't know how it would have happened. Asa never got the privilege of finding out. And so often that's our challenge as well. Well, look at verse 10. Asa's response was not good. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. Now the acts of Asa from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, His disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. Look at verse 12, where it says, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord. Yet even. That word even in Hebrew is literally also. So you could understand it yet also in his disease. Meaning, just like he didn't trust God with Basha when when he invaded, he didn't trust God with the disease. Asa's trust of the Lord is now, lack of trust in the Lord is now spreading, in other words, like a disease. And literally it was a disease. He didn't trust the Lord in one area, and his lack of trust here now begins to shift to the area of his physical life. He was so bitter, he was so angry that that God would, would send a prophet and rebuke him for protecting the nation that Asa imprisons the, uh, the prophet, oppresses the people, and now doesn't even seek God when he gets his foot disease but instead instead only seeks the physicians. That little word also there shows that there is now a pattern in Asa's life where God is less and less important, and he's only looking to people instead of looking to God. We can learn to trust God in all areas. We can learn to trust God in all areas. It's a great principle to think about because... When God comes through for you in one area, transfer that trust to the other area. If God takes care of you financially, transfer that trust to the other area where God is yet to show up. Because our trust in the Lord needs to be with all of our heart and without exception. True story, I heard about a CEO of a nonprofit who was approached by a fellow C-level executive, shared that this... CEO that he was treating his employees harshly and it wasn't fitting for a Christian ministry. It was a Christian nonprofit. The CEO responded by rebuking this uh, executive and by demanding more from his employees. I heard about that story and I thought, boy, that is Asa. That was Asa. Asa rebuked God's messenger and then took it out on the people. 
Think about David in contrast to this. When he was rebuked, can you think of a time that David was rebuked that he didn't respond well? Even when Joab rebuked him, David responded well, which is amazing because I'm sure Joab wasn't particularly tactful in how he brought it about. But you know, our growth so often depends on our response to rebuke. If we respond in pride and wall up like Asa did, then God gets farther and farther away. But if we allow that rebuke to do its work, to evaluate it, sometimes it's right, sometimes it's not, but to evaluate it and to allow allow the truth of the Spirit of God to land on our hearts, to find the weakness that God intended to reveal and respond to it appropriately, then we will grow in our spiritual lives. Asa didn't do that. So now, now he wasn't trusting God for military security, but, he's, but he also wouldn't even trust God with something as simple as his disease. And he died uh, a tragic case. Our afflictions have a purpose. They shine a spotlight on a truth that is just as true as prosperity. Let me say that again. Our afflictions have a purpose. They shine a spotlight on a truth that is just as true as in a time of prosperity, and that is that we are fully dependent on God. Fully dependent on God. Whatever it is in your life right now that needs attention, don't lean on your own understanding like Asa. Remember the great promise because it's a principle that's true for us as well, that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth to strongly support those whose heart is completely His. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this account that we're able to read today. It's such a tragedy. How inspiring is Asa's life and his reign as it begins that he even deposes a family member in order to stay true to the the Bible and true to the Word of God. And yet you knew the hot button that would bring out the weakness of Asa's heart, and in his pride he did not respond well, and as a result his spiritual life really struggled. Father, we've all been there, and thank you by virtue of the fact that we're still breathing You've given us a chance today to respond well to the rebuke of your Holy Spirit, to allow his work to do its gracious, gracious work in our lives, that we may humble ourselves and allow our hearts to be tender and to renew our trust in a situation that maybe we had only trusted in ourselves beforehand. Help us to be like the the people that you want us to be, that your eyes, as they search to and fro throughout this room and throughout our hearts, that they would find hearts fully devoted. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen watch in vain. The horse is made ready for battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. You've given us work to do. But, Father, we're not trusting in our watching the city, in our building the house, or our preparing the horse. We're trusting in you, ultimately. 
and ask that you would give us the humility to respond well. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.